Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hey, Mattachinos! Or should I call you San Francisco Gay Democratic Club members now? Ah, too wordy. Welcome to Queer Serial's new sister series, written and hosted by Will Roscoe, because he was there. This story takes place just a few years after the events in Queer Serial, which ended in 1970. In that series, over three seasons, we charted our community's rise to power. They're coming out from the underground, demanding a seat at the table. In this series, we'll focus in on one city, San Francisco, and what they did with their power, and how they kept it when our first elected official to get a seat at that table was assassinated by a fellow supervisor. Our host, Will Roscoe, worked with Harvey Milk to organize funds for the Pacific Center for Human Growth, and he worked on the No on Six campaign. But put a pin in all that. He's going to tell you all about it. In 1979, Will was at the first Radical Fairy Gatherings, where he became close friends with Mattachine founder Harry Hay. Will later went on to help preserve Harry's legacy by publishing the book Radically Gay, Gay Liberation in the Words of its Founder, Harry Hay. And that book was a vital resource for season one of this podcast. That's how Will and I met. Will and his partner, Bradley Rose, published Vortex, a journal of new vision featuring their coverage of the White Knight Riots. Stay tuned for that. Will became a pioneering gay scholar, one of the foremost historians on Native American two-spirit traditions, telling the stories of non-binary indigenous people, and publishing more than 10 queer history books, including, among many others, The Zuni Man-Woman, Changing Ones, Queer Spirits, Jesus and the Shamanistic Tradition of Same-Sex Love, an anthology on African same-sex traditions, and 
a trashy murder mystery set in San Francisco's queer dance clubs. Stay tuned in the credits. I have to ask him about that. She's won a Margaret Mead Award, two Lambda Literary Awards, lots of others. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence named Will a saint. Sister Vera Severa, a.k.a. Will Roscoe, is also one of my dearest Judies. He invited me into a big circle of fairies who have all brought so much joy into my life. By the time this sister series is done, you're going to love Will as much as I do. He knew Milk's successor, Harry Britt, and he recorded the interviews that you'll hear with former supervisor Britt. Harry Britt is an incredibly important queer leader you've probably never heard about. He worked tirelessly on progressive issues that are now championed by folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, and he did it with the power of the gay community behind him. In the shadow of one of our movement's greatest legends, Harry Britt's story has been overlooked. Now, Will, Harry, and I are going to share that story with you. I showed that in the race for supervisor. I got 53,000 votes throughout the city. I About three years ago, I got mad out of the whole situation, but I either had to go ahead and shut up and not buy the papers anymore, not watch my television anymore, or do something about it. And I'm still mad. Political power rests here in the 5th Supervisorial District, the Castro District. There is a high percentage of gays in this town, and they are a political force here. Gay people all across the state! The Briggs can only be defeated if each and every one of you comes out to everyone you know you must. Harvey Milk on his way to City Hall to be sworn in as a supervisor in San Francisco. At his side, his gay lover. The reason you wanted to be elected to high office is so you could recruit and convert every young adolescent. <laughs> My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. I don't want to put anybody in jail. I don't want to find anybody. I just want to clean up the mess. Milk owns and operates a camera store. Um, why do you think gay people should have uh, employment rights protections? Proposition 6, homosexuals in education. Who will be a proper role model for their children in the California classroom? If the John Brinkley's win, they will not stop. Yeah. You want to leave? Well, damn it, leave! Yeah. Despite the applause, Harvey Milk does have his critics. They say he's too emotional, that he shoots from the hip. But no one doubts that he will fight. Politicians normally wouldn't even consider going after the gay vote, now are seeking it with newfound zeal. The mayor was on the steps of City Hall to meet Harvey Milk. Milk says City Hall seems to have survived the election of the first gay official and that no earthquake has yet knocked it down. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot, and reports are that they have been killed. Uh, Diane Feinstein, uh, who's the president of the Board of Supervisors, has put an all-points bulletin out for City Supervisor Dan White. Today we went looking for clues to why White, the patriot, the athlete, the family man, the conservative citizen, would kill the mayor who refused to reappoint him to his post, and a supervisor who opposed him politically. A significant amount of the motivation was that uh, Harvey Milk was gay. For some time, Milk had been the victim of a number of assassination threats. In fact, he recorded a tape over a year ago, a tape he wanted played if he was killed while in office. This is Harvey Milk. This is to be played only in the event of my death by assassination. The mayor has the power, that's George Moscone, of appointing my successor on the Board of Supervisors. The third choice I would have would be Harry Britt. I'm Will Roscoe, and this is Give Him Hell Harry, the man who kept Harvey Milk's dream alive. Episode 1, The Most Screwed Up Person in the World. November 9, 1977. It's a cool, cloudy day, pretty much like every day in the city by the bay. The morning commute is underway, and cars are streaming down the city's main thoroughfare, Market Street. But this morning, there's a line of people on the sidewalk, cheering and waving signs. 
One side reads, Honk for Harvey. On the other, hastily scrawled in marker pen, they read, Thank you, Harvey. The commuters honk and wave back. The night before, Harvey Bernard Milk had been elected San Francisco's first openly gay official and one of the first anywhere in the country. No one is more jubilant than Harry Britt. Thirty-nine years old, the lanky six-foot-four Texan with thick brown hair and a gentle drawl had arrived in San Francisco five years earlier. In his own words, the most screwed-up person in the world. He volunteers for Harvey's campaign in 1975 and proves himself an able organizer. And he becomes part of a dynamic circle of passionate young activists drawn to Harvey and his politics. Folks like Bill Krause, Dick Pabich, Jim Rivaldo, Ann Cronenberg, Tim Wolfred, Gwen Craig, Cleve Jones, and others. Now, as he stands waving at the passing cars, he reflects on the victory. Well, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. And see, in the process of the campaign, we had become very close as a group. That campaign was important, and it was important when Harvey was killed, because we, we had developed trust for each other. We had developed a mutual dislike of Alice B. Toblis and everything it stood for. We felt like we were on the side of the angels, and we loved Harvey. So there was a, a, a bond in that group that most of us, well, I don't know that many queer folk had ever had, had that kind of an experience exactly. It was, it was really quite powerful to be the winners. Uh, I can get sort of choked up thinking about it. It, was, it just doesn't happen that way. And this was 7.30, or 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, and I was amazed that, I mean, I'd gotten a little bit of sleep, but not much, because I was too, you know, too hyper for that. But all these other people that had been drinking, I imagine a lot of them hadn't been to sleep at all, and Harvey was there. That was fun. And partly fun for me, because I was the freshest of the group, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I was able to talk loud in people's faces and sort of like, it was that kind of a thing. I, it, was, it, was, it was nice. And that's when Harvey, you know, within hours, within eight hours of his knowing that he was the one, took me aside and told me that he expected to be killed and that he wanted me to live my life in such a way that when he was killed, I would be available to be his successor. And he told me that he'd said the same thing to two other people, Bob Ross and Frank Robinson. Now, I didn't want to hear that. <laughs> really, I really didn't want to hear it, and the only way I could handle it was to think, this is just Harvey being paranoid here, as he's not going to get killed. Um, but what I remember about it is not so much the part about me, but the fact that, you know, the great fulfillment of all of his dreams. He had already made the will <laughs> within hours of his election. So he really took he took his historical importance very seriously because he knew if he died and and Mayor Moscone was able to put in power the Alice B. Topless people, that everything he had done would have been in vain. And he, you know, death was not for him something terrible to be feared. It was a reality that's part of the human condition that has to be dealt with. You have to make your will. You don't pretend you're going to live forever. And uh, it was an important part of his politics. So that was, that memory of Harvey uh, talking to me about his death when everybody else was out there just going crazy happy was just a very powerful memory. Flash forward, January. 1979. Harry G. Britt, Jr. 
is standing in an ornate chamber in San Francisco's Bozar City Hall. Harvey's premonition has proven eerily true. Six weeks earlier, he had been shot and killed in that very building. And now, Harry is being sworn in to take his seat on the Board of Supervisors. Would you raise your right hand, please? Do you, Harry G. Rick, solemnly swear that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the State of California? and that you will well and faithfully discharge the duties upon which you are about to enter, and during such time as you hold the office of a member of the Board of Supervisors. I will. Congratulations. It will close with the classic political chestnut. Are you going to be a candidate for election in November? I am. Thank you, Supervisor Harry Britt. Harry will not only serve out the rest of Harvey's term. In November 1979, he'll be elected supervisor in his own right and re-elected in 1982, 1984, and 1988. By virtue of earning the most votes, he'll serve as president of the Board of Supervisors for two years. In 1987, he'll run for Congress against an up-and-coming Democratic insider named, you might have heard of her, Nancy Pelosi. Yet, while Harvey Bilk has become a legend in books, film, television, even in opera, Harry Britt is barely known. He died at the age of 82 on June 24, 2020. Whenever I try to tell people who Harry was... I always end up saying, he was Harvey Milk's replacement. But Harry was much more than that. He keeps Harvey's dream alive. You might say, Harvey is the theory, but Harry is the practice. Over the 12 years he serves in office, Harry Britt helps make San Francisco one of the most progressive cities in the nation. From gay rights to domestic partnerships, police reform, neighborhood preservation, housing and rent control. Harry will fight real estate developers, gentrification, and apartheid. And he will lead his community through the darkest days of a global pandemic. Harry's story is special for another reason as well. No one is less suited for politics than this introverted, soft-spoken man. He is hobbled with inhibitions. He has a habit of putting himself down. He hates crowds, campaigning, and fundraising. He had been a Methodist minister married to a minister's daughter. He became a national voice for queer rights. It was a long road from Texas to San Francisco. I came out in 1975 in my hometown, Missoula, Montana, and helped start the first queer organization in the state. That summer, I went to San Francisco for the first time. The gay scene back then was still concentrated along Polk Street. That's where you went to party at discos like the In Touch, with its dance floor of flashing colored squares, and Busby's, all silver and black with Boston ferns. I had to sneak in because I was still underage. And when the bars closed, there were the Liberty Baths and a burger joint in a reclaimed streetcar called Grubsteak. My older brother was gay, and he had settled in San Francisco after serving in the Vietnam War. He gave me a royal tour of the city's gay bars, introduced me to people with names like Sweet Lips and Mr. Marcus, and he took me to a fabulous coronation ball held by the Imperial Court in the Palace Hotel, where Diane Feinstein, then a supervisor, walked onto stage. In January 1978, I moved to the Bay Area. By then, I had spent a summer in New York as an intern for what is today the National LGBTQ Task Force, and then a year at the University of Oregon, where I was president of the Gay People's Alliance. 
Now, I began an internship at Pacific Center, an LGBTQ social service agency in Berkeley. Soon after arriving, I watched Harvey Milk on my tiny black and white TV as he walked down Market Street in the rain with his arm around his lover to be sworn into office. I knew then that I was in the right place at the right time. A few weeks later, I went with Carol Migdon, the Pacific Center's executive director and a future state senator, to see Harvey in his tiny city hall office. We needed his help in a campaign to pressure the United Way into funding a queer social services agency. Harvey helped, and we won that fight. And later that summer, on Harvey's recommendation, I was hired to coordinate voter registration for the No on Six campaign. Proposition 6 was the infamous Briggs Initiative to ban gay teachers from public schools. That's when I met Harry Britt. I remember the day he threw his arm around my shoulders and invited me to join the San Francisco Gay Democratic Club, now the Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club. But after Harvey's assassination, my life took a different direction. I ended up writing about Native American two-spirits. I went back to school and got a Ph.D. Our paths did not cross again until the 1990s. Harry had retired from politics and was teaching at an alternative school called New College. He asked me to speak to his class, and I asked him to speak to one of mine. In 2009, I invited Harry to a housewarming party, but he politely declined. He was no good at social gatherings, he told me. If it was just the two of us, he said, he would be happy to have dinner with me. So that fall, I visited Harry in his subterranean apartment in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. Now retired from teaching, he spent his days sleeping in, reading, and posting on the Internet. He wanted to do a book, he told me, although it was never clear whether it would be a memoir or a political treatise or something else. He was already struggling with dates and names. So I proposed we do an oral history. We would get together once a week and record our conversations. We ended up meeting nine times and recording nearly 20 hours. This is Harry's story in his own words. I was born on June 8, 1938, in St. Mary's Hospital in Port Arthur, Texas. My dad was a um, child of the Depression who worked in an oil refinery. Uh, Port Arthur was an oil refinery town, um, very blue-collar town. All of the money went back to Pennsylvania to, to the, where the, fact, where the head of headquarters of the Gulf Oil and Texaco and Atlantic were. Um, it was a city that had no bookstores, um, lots and lots and lots of churches. Uh, Port Arthur is mainly famous as Janis Joplin's hometown. And actually, uh, I did have a very brief meeting with Janis Joplin when she was a little girl. But that's not was not important in her life, and it's not important in my life. So we we can move on. Um, Port Arthur was a man's town. Football, fishing, hunting. Um, there's no chance that I would ever catch a fish, or that I would ever hunt a bird, or uh, repair a car. Um, changing a flat is still an ordeal for me at this point in my life. The my dad was a weightlifter, and we had barbells in the living room all the time. My mother hated that, but dad thought that was a, a good thing to have and expected me to use them. Um, you were Harry Britt Jr. Technically, my middle name is different, so I wasn't. Uh, but I was called... Uh, I was called Bubba sometimes to distinguish me from my from my father, but never outside the family. Um, I did read Strength and Health magazine 
uh, and I liked it. It has pictures. It has wonderful pictures, though they aren't really the type of physique that I really respond to well. Uh, way, way too uh, uh, well developed. But, but that was the positive side of the weightlifting experience. I never worked out otherwise. When, when I talk about, when I try to interpret my childhood, I get kind of weird. Um, I don't know. The research I've done on autism has caused me to be able to interpret my childhood experience as being somewhere on the scale of autism. Certainly social anxiety disorder. Uh, most of my human relationships were had more fear and more self-protection than enjoyment. Uh, all of them. The I can identify with, you know, people, things like idiot savants. I could perform strange things with my brain. I used it all the time. It got, it got as out of uh, normal as the the muscles in the strength and health magazines, and and so it became a resource for dealing with all kinds of situations, except situations involving emotions. Um, so I can look at my life experience in terms of social anxiety disorder, in terms of a brain that never stops performing calculations uh, that really are irritating sometimes. Or I can start from the fact that I never felt like a boy. I always felt like a girl. And all of the boy things that I was supposed to do were just totally unacceptable to me. My friends were girls. Um, and I think, you know, there was no talk in Port Arthur, Texas in the 40s of why don't I uh, change my gender here? <laughs> that wasn't going on. We didn't have homosexuality in Port Arthur. Uh, we didn't even have sexuality to talk about. Um, but I think did I, you experiment with cross-dressing or no? I never had. I never did, and I don't know if that's because I didn't want to or because I was afraid to. I think it's because I didn't want to. Um, I, I I wasn't really considered a, a hardcore sissy. I was more of a nerd than a sissy, um, but I was able to hang out with the jocks and without being. I never was abused and called names and that sort of thing because I was a very good role player. In fact, that's all I did was play roles. So, um, the my brain became my protection and and I it, it really was pretty impressive brain and I'm not, not boasting about that because I paid a terrible price for that. Uh, it, 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 it was a way of not being with people, was to be smarter than them. And I was a lot smarter than all the other people around me. I was a strange kid, uh, Will, and uh, still a strange kid. Um, so, you know, I can look at myself, my childhood as autism, I can look at it as uh, trans gender. Uh, I can look at it as just being uh, certainly OCD out the wazoo. <laughs> monk got no yeah. problems with monk. <laughs> so, you know, I can put all of those labels on what I was. Young Harry's brain could do a lot of clever things. It could win spelling bees and national merit scholarships. And while casual social situations were excruciating, Harry discovered he could stand up in front of a room and give a speech. His junior high debate team was second in the state. I was good at that. And it was so weird because I couldn't, I couldn't talk to a group of my friends. I couldn't play poker and enjoy the conversation. But I could get up in front of a room full of people and give a speech. 
And I think it was somehow the, the, the terror I felt in the crowd, even in whether it was my cub pack or a Boy Scout den or um, any group I was in. He was bright and well-behaved, and this made him his mother's favorite. But there was something else, something that he had no words for. He liked boys. I want to tell you about my friend Don. Um, I knew Don when I was 13, 14 years old at Woodrow Wilson Junior High School. Um, Don was gay. I, I didn't have any clue what that word meant in those days, and it's certainly not a word that he and I ever talked, shared with each other. I know from the time that I, as far back as I can remember, I had a, a, a terrible desire to be close to attractive, other attract, attractive boys. Uh, I, I can't say that that was a discovery of, of sexual orientation because they're envisioning myself as an erotic creature. It was simply not something that I could do. But I know there was a little a kid in a, in a sailor suit in kindergarten that I really just felt all kind of feelings when he was in the room and great sadness when he moved out of town. And that those feelings, that desire to have or to be close to, or to, in some way, that other boy or other man later really dominated my life for a very long time. It, it, it shaped all of my decisions that I made um, in a way that I don't know how hurtful that might have been. Don, the, the biggest deal at Woodrow Wilson Junior High was something called the American Legion Award which was awarded by, you know, the right-wing American Legion <laughs> to, you know, the, the top all-around student citizen at the, at the school. And I remember one day that we were in the grade before our class would get that, would hand, hand out that award, and Don told me after we went to the assembly that next year I was going to win it. And when he said that, I, I had a very intense emotional reaction to that because I knew that I was going to be dead within a year. And there was no way I could win anything. And the reason I knew that I was going to be dead is because of my feelings for Don and my sense that God was, would not tolerate me living very much longer and my proof of that or my evidence of that was that I had a sore on my arm which would not go away and I knew this the signs of the seven symptoms of cancer the early and one of them was you have a sore that won't go away and I was absolutely clear that that's what that sore was all about the next year I did win that award is that in eighth grade? Yeah. Okay. Which means I conned the teachers because <laughs> they picked the winner. Uh -huh. I wouldn't have won it if the students had picked the winner. But Don, in between those two events, Don had died of leukemia. Now, I was certainly very clear about the meaning of that. And so I, so it, it, it was hard for me to really enjoy that award because what it did was, was a reminder that, you know, Don had had to suffer for what we felt for each other. At one point in okay. a dark room when we were watching a movie like you do in junior high school, uh -huh. he reached over and, and kissed me uh -huh. on, the, on the neck and said, I love you. And, uh, so, you know, one thing in my life I wish I could take back, <laughs> I turned back to him and said, me too. 
And he interpreted that to mean, say, I love me too, rather than I love you too. And, you know, he laughed. And, and nothing ever happened to undo that. <laughs> Bad moment in my life. So Don died. Um, and that's the kind, that's what it was like to be Harry Brett in 1953. You wouldn't wish that on your, your enemies. Um, and the only good thing about all that is, you know, when you're, when you're kind of screwed up, you develop resources, you observe people, you, you develop strategies for surviving that as you become older can be, can be quite useful. Harry grew up in the segregated South, separate schools, separate lunch counters, separate seats on the bus. In the 1940s, it all seemed normal to a white working-class boy in Port Arthur. But Harry's secret attraction to boys would lead him to discover something was wrong. You were on the outside, too. You were look, you've been looking yes, at white people all your on, life. And I think maybe being gay had something to do with that. But I, I always understood that the whole social fabric that was coming to me was not me, not for me. My On the street that was perpendicular to the Union Street of my grandparents, there was a Puerto Rican family. Just immediately next, their backyard was right next to our backyard. And I was not allowed to play with the little Puerto Ricans. And that upset me because I had been playing with them and I wanted to play with them. Uh, he was kind of cute, actually. But I was told I couldn't play with the Puerto Ricans. And that was one of the moments. That was my grandmother. And I, I remember that really disappointed me in her. Uh, uh, but she was that kind of... She was from... Elmira, New York, and that kind of Yankee, you know, wanting Rectitude. to be like the good British people, and would, you know, she would do anything for the poor people and give thousands of hours of help, help charity work and all of that, but there was a sense of place. And I didn't have that sense of place, because my place was over here somewhere. <laughs> it wasn't with the Puerto Ricans, and it wasn't with the uh, the white elites either. So I do remember that little incident, that little moment of what I would certainly consider racism now, but I guess it was more classism, maybe. I don't know. Whatever. The, those Obviously those two things run together pretty easily. <laughs> Harry's parents were regular Methodists, folks who went to church on Sunday and taught Sunday school. But in the South, everyone did that. As time went by, they stopped going regularly. But Harry kept on. He went to church camp. He gave his life to Jesus. And he secretly agonized because he couldn't get close to the cute boys he saw. Methodism came to America in the 1730s and quickly became a national crusade. The Methodists were famous for their itinerant ministers. With so few churches in the vast American frontier, Methodist circuit riders took the gospel to the people, preaching in the fields, barns, and markets. And many early Methodists strongly opposed slavery. According to Harry, it wasn't the Bible stories or the sermons that drew him to Methodism. It was the social opportunities. It was a women's place, he told me. The women did the teaching and baked the casseroles. And Harry could give speeches to the Methodist Youth Fellowship. They made him president. It was a safe space, he recalled, where you didn't have to be a boy or a man. You could be a girl. Harry graduated from Robert E. Lee High School in 1956, and with his National Merit Scholarship, he enrolled at Duke University in North Carolina. I had no 
idea what to major in. And, and that's, again, that's part of the problems of being crazy is you don't have that feedback from the world that enables you to make decisions. There wasn't anything I wanted to be. And it's not that I was lazy. I really wasn't lazy. It's just that I could not visualize myself in any, in any uh, occupation. Um, my grandfather was a doctor. And I hold him up as a model of absolute excellence. He was a much-loved doctor who just did heroic um, things as a doctor. He had a school named after him, a street named after him. He was a very, but he was a very—he wasn't a politician-type person. He was just very, very wise and good, and everybody adored him. So I went to do as a pre-med student which pleased him and later disappointed him when I dropped out of that. But it was a terribly stupid thing to do. I hate blood. I, when they put me in a zoology class and expected me to cut up a frog, I knew I wasn't going to be a doctor. So the idea of me being a doctor was so just incredibly stupid. But that's what I did. I joined the pre-med society stayed there for one year. I majored in English because I enjoyed it. But, you know, majoring in, for anyone to major in English is stupid because <laughs> there's nothing to do with it when you get out of school except teach English, which would not have been bad. Maybe the most reward... Oh God, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. The most immediate rewarding political office I ever held in my life was president of my fraternity at Duke. Because that's the kind of thing I couldn't do in Port Arthur. Why? I mean, this Why was a, a, you know, a bunch of guys who lived together. Uh -huh. I was the only one who didn't drink. Um, it was a pretty party-type fraternity, especially by Duke standards, not a great party school. Um, but we lived together, and so I was able to relate to people one-on-one -on -one and to pay attention to them. And I, one thing I did learn in my neediness was to be a good friend, and that's important. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that I learned to do that, and because a lot of the jocks didn't learn, didn't learn to do that. So I was a good. I was a good fraternity person, uh, but I, though, even though I didn't drink, I had a really hard time with the dating thing. Um, but going to Duke, I would feel bad that I went there except for that experience of being president of Pi Kappa Phi fraternity. I, I, I was so, I enjoyed that so very, very much. After we gave up on pre-med, Harry went to a counselor and took a career test. It told him he should be a winemaker. Then he learned he could graduate in three and a half years if he majored in religion. He studied German and took classes on Plato. And he began to date a young woman named Fran. Fran's father was a Methodist minister. While visiting her home in South Carolina, Harry decided to become a minister himself. It wasn't a big emotional moment. It was just thinking about, not about my father-in-law, he and I didn't get along at all, but about the lifestyle, about being able to be a pastor to people and to preach. Um, and there was also the great big fact that I didn't have any other alternatives really at the time. Oh, that made any sense to me. What did you do with a BA in religion? Harry and Fran got married in Duke's Gothic Chapel. Then they got in a car and drove to Texas. Years of graduate study followed. Harry attended a seminary at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. He got an award for being the best Bible student and earned a Master of Theology degree. And he discovered he liked teaching. 
For a while, he served as pastor at a tiny church in rural Wood County. Harry preached, and Fran played piano. Wood County, by the way, is home to San Francisco's first African-American mayor, Willie Brown. But back then, the future mayor and future supervisor lived on opposite sides of a color line. When he graduated in 1963, Harry was an ordained Methodist deacon, a circuit rider. And technically, he remained a Methodist minister to the end of his life. You couldn't leave, he told me. But if you got off the horse, they called you a voluntary location. Even if that location was the infamous city by the bay. So now what? One of Harry's professors had suggested he study in Europe. And so Harry and Fran got on a boat and they spent a year at the University of Heidelberg. Harry's memory of this time were vivid. There were lectures by world-renowned scholars drives to Austria and Switzerland in a Volkswagen. In November 1963, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, Harry watched tearful Germans flowing down the Hauptstrasse, carrying candles. It was the first, but not the last, candlelight march he would witness. It's 1968. And America is erupting in a frenzy of riots, tear gas, protests, and assassinations. And Harry Britt's life is about to be turned upside down. Harry and Fran had settled in Chicago in 1964. Still hoping to get a Ph.D., Harry entered the University of Chicago Divinity School. He's done with theology. Now he's studying the philosophy of religion. He takes classes and lectures from intellectual superstars, Paul Tillich, Richard McKean, Hannah Arendt. By now, Harry is woke, at least in terms of politics. He joins Sololinsky's Back of the Yards Council. He gets involved with Americans for Democratic Action. He volunteers for Hubert Humphrey's 1968 campaign. And he invites black people to join his church. One of Harry's churches was not far from where Martin Luther King Jr. preached when he was in Chicago. Oh, he meant a lot to me. He was, because I was still going through a fairly major, you know, getting rid of religion. I mean, that, that was, I didn't have an identity outside of that. When I was a kid, that was my whole identity was in the church. And um, Dr. King meant, meant a lot. What did he mean to me? I marched in Montgomery. That was cool. That was when I was a student at the University of Chicago. And we drove down to... We got one of these deals where you drive a car down and turn it into its owner type thing. And about five of us from, from the university went down just to Montgomery. We didn't march. Selma, we, we went down to Montgomery, and, and, and I remember the, the weather was bad. We had to sleep on the floor of a little shack that some African-American people lived in. It was cold. It was not pleasant at all. We were dirty. Uh, and then the next day, we got up and went to the assembly grounds, and... Uh, We kind of marched around the assembly ground. At this point, the march was basically over, but we just kept marching, just because that's what we were there to do, I guess. And, and some of my buddies, some of my former students from Dallas that I had taught Greek to were there, and that was kind of neat to see them again. Uh, but on the way down in the car, we encountered the Alabama State Highway Patrol, Will Connors people. Because uh, the car was registered in, it wasn't our car. We were from Illinois, and the, and the car was registered in maybe Tennessee, anyhow, a southern state. So they didn't trust us at all. They didn't, you know, we were kind of Yankees. And they gave us, a, they stopped us, and they searched us, and they gave, they lost, you know, really, you know, threatened us, and all this kind of stuff. No, no. There was no yeah. violence, but you got that sense of 
it was different for me having raised in the South and associating the South with that kind of gentility that my grandmother had and and having been to, you know back and forth across Alabama many times and thinking you know how great what a gracious group of people they are and then to see the real hardcore mm-hmm. face and to see people spitting on nuns uh, I mean it was it was pretty nasty but then his life started to unravel he wasn't a good minister he told me what his congregation wanted he couldn't give and his marriage ended There had been little sex and no children. For seven years, Harry felt a crushing sense of inadequacy. She was marvelous, an extraordinary woman, and she loved me very much. And I loved her, uh, but not in the way that you're supposed to love people. As a Methodist minister, being divorced was a problem. But as Harry was sorting out the implications for his future, something far more consequential happened, and it led Harry to make a momentous decision. We can jump ahead to 1968. Worst year of my life, I was a wretched human being, very depressed, hugely depressed. On April 4, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Um, My wife and I had split up now, but I'm still pastor of this this other church and in the back of the arts. And uh, I was really shattered by his death and the my phone rang off the hook. I think he was killed on like a Thursday or Friday. I got started getting all these phone calls from my church members saying, are we having church Sunday? They didn't want to because they were afraid the black people were going to come and get them because we were like you know very close to the African American community neighborhood and and they, everybody was saying we shouldn't have church and I was so depressed by that I didn't I wasn't happy with my church anyway and they weren't happy with me either they didn't like me getting divorced for one thing but. In Chicago, at the time, there was the CTA, the the Muni of Chicago, and then there was the Illinois Central Railroad, and they both ran north and south, as you know about Chicago, only a very few blocks apart. But the Illinois Central Railroad was for white folks, basically. People from Evanston came down and the CTA was more for poor people, a lot of black people. So I went and I just bought a ticket and spent a couple of hours riding on the CTA because that's the only way I could think of offhand to get into a black environment, you know. And I just, on the day before church, I just rode the train. I didn't talk to any of the black people, I just was there and observing them and feeling them and there was a lot of tears and a lot of anger but more tears than anger Uh, it was sort of like the Harvey Milk assassination in the sense people were just so overcome with their grief that they weren't expressing their anger so much and that was so different from what my congregation had told me black people were doing so on Sunday morning I, I, I gave what I thought was a pretty powerful sermon. I, uh, the congregation, I, I told the story and the, uh, and the congregation thought I was talking about Jesus, but I was talking about Dr. King. And I really did a parallel between the life of Martin Luther King and the life of Jesus. Uh, of course, I no longer believe we know anything about the life of Jesus, but basically the whole notion of uh, the way he was and the things he stood for. And then I quit, right, on the spot. Harry's path has taken him from Port Arthur to Duke University, from Dallas to Heidelberg and Chicago. He had been a Methodist minister, 
He was in Montgomery when Martin Luther King Jr. led in the marchers from Selma. Now, at the age of 30, he's out of his marriage, out of the church, but he still isn't out of the closet. And so he moves back to Dallas. He's depressed, overweight, smoking four packs of cigarettes a day. He has spent his adult life winning scholarships and chasing academic degrees and preaching. Now he's living on macaroni and cheese. He has no friends. How did a shy, awkward gay boy from Texas end up one of the most powerful progressive politicians in San Francisco's history? This is The Gay Life on KSAN. Good morning. I'm Randy Alfred. What kind of help do you need from gay people of the Bay Area in general? Great. That's the question I wanted you to ask. Uh, I, I really am serious about the idea that I don't know very much about city government. Uh, I don't know how to vote on issue A, B, C, D, E. And I don't believe that, that I should make decisions for the district. Uh, Harvey did a little of that. He, he was certainly in touch with the people as much as any politician ever was. But he trusted himself to make some decisions for people, and, and he was a genius, and I, I'm not criticizing him for that. I don't, like, I don't see politics as a place where the guy that wins the election uh, gets all the goodies. Uh, I believe that everyone in the district has, has a right to representation, and I will try to, to be a voice for them. So the, what I want from people in the district is, first of all, names of, human, of uh, uh, women and men that I should be talking to. Uh, any ideas around that are, are my first priority. What about help from gay people in your position as a movement leader? The help from gay people is to look at yourself and look at all of the enemies you've made over the last year or two of your life and, and ask yourself whether that's really necessary now. Uh, things like the police problems we're having the very urgency of reaching out to other minority communities and establishing relationships, the leadership role that San Francisco has to play around the country absolutely require that we focus our energies on what the movement requires of us and not on dealing with, with rivalries within the movement. I have begun a process of, of reconciling the wounds that were created in terms of my relationship with Harvey uh, this is a time for healing within the gay community because we need each other. And, and uh, I hope that every single gay person will look at her or his own role in that and be assured I'll be available wherever I can to help with that. He's still got a ways to go, not only from Texas to San Francisco, but from the closet to a bar called Toad Hall. Next week, Episode 2. This crazy Jewish guy with the ponytail. Give Em Hell Harry is written and hosted by Will Roscoe. She's produced by me, Devlin Camp. You can find tons of info about this show and other Queer Serial podcasts at QueerSerial.com. And follow me on Instagram and Twitter at QueerSerial for all sorts of images from the stories on the podcast. And click the link in the episode notes to get on my cute little email list for periodic updates. And also, if you want to listen to bonus episodes and explore lots of queer history deep dives with me, join me over on Patreon. You can support Queer Serial for $3 a month, and you'll get the entire backlog of bonus episodes, including the new bonus podcast, White Night Riot Interviews. I'm talking to rioters who were there on the street about why they did what they did and how they feel about it today. On tomorrow's bonus episode, I'm chatting with the host of this sister series, Miss Will Roscoe. He's a fantastic queer historian, and he was there for the White Knight Riots, and had a hand in fanning the literal flames. And he has lots of stories about his time in the Radical Fairies with Mattachine founder Harry Hay. You can listen to that interview tomorrow on Infamous Crimes, the White Knight Riot interviews, only on my Patreon. Also on my Patreon, you can listen to my full series on the 1955 Boise, Idaho gay sex panic. You can dive into Mattachino Randy Wicker's massive personal archive, and you'll find all sorts of homo history odds and ends. There's the link in the episode notes, patreon.com slash queer serial. Thanks for your support, preserving and sharing queer history. Devlin. <laughs> girl. So, well, uh... Judy. <laughs> Kitty. <laughs> I have some follow-up questions. 
You mentioned a disco with flashing color square tiles on the floor. Uh, yes. The InTouch. Please the in tell touch. me everything. Well, the InTouch was on Polk Street, and I went there in 1975 when I was 20 years old. I'm sneaking in the door. The longtime bartender at um, InTouch, who we were talking about who were other important people, mm-hmm. was Wayne Friday, and he was a key figure in the Tavern Guild. Strong supporter of... Um, Harvey, wrote a weekly column in the Bay Area Reporter. Uh, But I didn't know any of that. Well, I did know that in 1975. Wayne Friday was one of the people my brother introduced me to when he took me around. But um, this was a disco. It was not big, but it had this elevated dance floor with the flashing squares. And I swear to God, they were there until it finally closed whenever it was, but all the way through the 90s and into the 2000s. Wow. And, uh, you know, I can remember dancing to um, uh, uh, 24 Little Hours. Was that Gloria Gaynor or or somebody else? I'm not sure I know this song. Yeah. Uh, 24 Little Hours, dancing to that, dancing to Donna Summer. Yes, so uh, I went to the uh, In Touch a lot in 1975. Also, a little bit Busby's, which is a little more glamorous, a little more upscale, uh, gray and silver and black. Uh, but it also had a small dance floor. These were not giant discos. These were neighborhood bars that had a little bit of space in the back. My favorite kind. Did you ever check out the Liberty Baths, or is that too salacious for the public? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> the Liberty Baths... Uh, um, did I go to them in my first visit? Did I go to them in 1977? Probably once or both times. Uh, it was, you know, not a big thing. Um, was it one floor or two floor? I'm pretty sure I, I went in 1977 because when I went back to Oregon where I was going to the college, I uh, came down with hepatitis. Liberty Bass. I see. I can trim that out if you want me to. I, whatever. It's your, it's your. It's a part of the story, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. And also, hepatitis at a at a dumpy gay bar, groundbreaking. I mean, that's groundbreaking. <laughs> at, a, at a medium Liberty Baths was not the most glamorous, but it wasn't the dumpiest. Ah, but okay. no, I mean the hepatitis was dramatic because I was doing. Uh, an internship at a social service agencies for runaway youth in Eugene and I was doing the overnight shift and I remember like there was an intake and somewhere in the middle of the night I started throwing up oh god (laughs) what a terrible surprise (sighs) yes all turned all yellow and went into the student health clinic oh goodness but you are actually the third person in my interviews to talk about getting hepatitis so you're not alone. So, Will, you've published several well-regarded queer history books, but please tell me about your trashy murder mystery, because okay. the kids at home right. want to know. <laughs> well, I'm not sure it's as good as I thought it was when I wrote it. It's called Drop Dot 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 Dead, The DJ Murders. Uh-huh. It's not written in my name, but if you want to hunt it down based on the title, you're likely to find copies on the internet, because uh, the press went out of business a month after it was published and then dumped its copies into the world of used books. Oh. Yeah. So I was um, spending a lot of time around 2000 and so at an enormous dance club, uh, two or three of them in San Francisco making a new circle of friends, going there every Saturday night and sometimes Sunday night. And it was kind of a lark that we we were hating the music. And one night I said to a friend, you know, if the DJ started dropping dead, uh, there would be a lot of suspects. And I said, (laughs) I'm going to write a murder mystery and all the characters will be based on my friends. And drop, of course, refers to dropping ecstasy. All right. Uh, and I'm, I inspired by Tale of the City, so uh, I did this thing, and um, it, it's out there. And it, it was fun. I wanted to make my friends all sort of, because I was older than them, feel that this, cl- this club, this nighttime world that we're creating is, is special. It's, it's unique. It's tribal. And we should all really appreciate it while we have it, because the club was then closed in 2002, and and demolished, and luxury housing was built on top of it. Mm. 
But I'll put a link in the episode notes so the folks at home can find it. Uh, <laughs> or just know that I don't get link. anything from it, you know, royalties or anything like that. So. Oh, well, they can admire the art and the community. So, uh, Harry briefly teased that he knew Janis Joplin in his childhood. Did you get any more about that when you spoke? Right. Well, not from him, but uh, I came across a, a newspaper article. Apparently, Janis was in his Sunday school class in Texas. Wow. Who knew? Who knew? Small world. Very interesting. And they both came to San Francisco. Big thanks to our fabulous sponsors. The Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club. The One Archives Foundation. The GLBT Historical Society. The James C. Hormel LGBTQIA Center at the San Francisco Public Library. You got it. (laughs) Oh, Smiter. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. The Making Gay History Podcast. Shaping San Francisco. And Lady Joey Kane and our fiscal sponsor, Calamus. And everyone who supported the show on Indiegogo. Especially those on the highest tier, including Susan Gray, a.k.a. Marianne Singleton. Sam Tupperman-Gelfont and Pat Gorley. Sharon P. Johnson with big hugs. And an anonymous longtime supporter of Queer Serial. Thanks, Mattachino. This podcast is produced with the support of the Murray Hong Family Trust in honor of the legacy of Stephen O. Murray. And thanks to Cass Brayton at the Archives of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. You can support the sisters at thesisters.org. And thanks to Anchor SF for providing a fantastic recording studio for the podcast. Special thanks also to Daniel Nicoletta for providing photos and Harvey Milk's complete audio will. Audio is used courtesy of the GLBT Historical Society, KPIX-TV, and KQED San Francisco. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening! Very cute.